What an honor to be in the presence of the Lord tonight. It's always good to be at God's house. You have your Bibles. Let's go to the book of James. I believe this is the passage of Scripture you have been studying for a few Wednesdays. And so if you will go with me to James chapter 3. Let me start reading verse 13. Who is, wise, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and of good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Lord bless you. You may be seated. The subject of wisdom in the scripture is probably one of the more common subjects in the New Testament. At the time of the birth of the church, man thought he was incredibly intelligent. You have been through Greek philosophers, there has been Plato, Aristotle, many others that had come into the world professing they had all kinds of wisdom. And then you had uh, the Jewish race that kind of looked down on everybody because a Jewish man would begin his prayer every day by saying, "God, Oh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I thank you that you did not create me a a woman or a Gentile. And that's how he began his prayer. When the church was born, it was not born into an environment that uh, would be supportive of who they were. The first church struggled with all kinds of issues that were present of that day. There had begun the surface of this theology or, or idea, or you could even call it wisdom or philosophy, called Gnosticism. And it had to do with anything that was spiritual. And it, it believed that spirituality wasn't anything you could really attain to. Because humans were flesh then it must be God's will for you to live your life based entirely on the flesh. So whatever your flesh wants to do, that's perfectly okay. Whatever its desire is, you can do it. There's no limits or restraints on what, if your flesh desires it, then it's perfectly okay because God being a spiritual being created us and left us to our own selves. So that must mean God really don't have a problem with you being as carnal as you want to be. That was the idea of that world. James begins to write to a church at the time of his writing, which is somewhere around 40 AD. The church has exploded in growth. It's probably well in the hundreds of thousands in membership by that time. The book of Acts lets us know on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the church shortly thereafter, another 5,000, and God kept adding to the church daily. So the church just exploded in growth. And about 18 months after Pentecost, there was a man who had papers in his hands going to a city to persecute the Christians. And on the way, he encounters a light that changed his life. 
and he winds up in Damascus on a street called Straight, and there his life changed. That was only 18 months after Pentecost, not 10, 5, 8, 9 years later, 18 months after Pentecost. The Apostle Paul is converted. He spends three years in the desert, and then he comes out of that desert having received of the Lord a visitation where the Lord spoke to him and 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 had a relationship with him, and he begins to teach. The church was terrified of him at the time, but shortly afterwards they bring him to Jerusalem, which is probably just before this event takes place of the writing of this passage of Scripture, and then they lay hands on Paul and Silas and send them off on first missionary journey. And during this time frame of the church expanding, there are things that start showing up that must be addressed. So James writes the first letter to the church. It's not a history of the life of Jesus. It's not in telling the church who Jesus was. It's, it's pointing out to them the simple things about life and relationships and living as he points out to them that their life is defined by how they live. And if you study it carefully and you look at what he says carefully, he tells us what really identifies us as being spiritual. Spirituality according to what James writes, is not how much you read the Bible. It's not how much you fast. It's not how much you pray or how much you speak in tongues or how much you prophesy or interpret tongues or be used in any of That's not the, the definition of spirituality. James says the definition of what makes you spiritual is how often you fight the flesh you live in and you conquer it. So spirituality is defined by me fighting this flesh and overcoming it and conquering it. Because blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. What defines whether or not I'm a good child of God is whether or not I'm fighting this battle of life, not between me and a spirit or me and a devil, but between me and me between me and the flesh that I live in. So he's he's writing to the church, and he's starting to reveal some of the issues that if we're honest and we look carefully at ourselves, we've had some of these issues ourselves. So when when the church first exploded and, and came on the scene, the majority are the large, vast majority of the new converts were Jewish. And Judaism of that day was different than what God gave Moses as they came out of Egypt. Judaism of that day had become a religion of rules and then rules on how to break rules. The rules of Judaism of that day said that you couldn't walk more than 2,000 steps on the Sabbath day. If you walked more than 2,000 steps on the Sabbath day, then you were working, and no man was to work on the Sabbath day. It's a day of rest. So you can't walk more than 2,000 steps from your home, which according to my telephone and my watch is probably a half a mile. So if... If I can't walk more than half a mile, but maybe mama lived a mile away, I couldn't go visit mama on on the Sabbath day because she lived too far. And so because humans complained and they stopped being spiritual like they should be and, and started paying more attention to their rules than the people, they came up with a way that you could get around the 2,000 steps. The day before, you just take an item from your home, walk 2,000 steps, set it down, and declare that your home. 
So on the Sabbath day, you can walk to that item and then walk 2,000 more steps past it to get to where you need to go. If you needed to go further, then you just keep putting pieces along the way. And if you wanted to walk all day, all you had to do is litter the way with objects from your home and declare it your home, and you could go as far as you want to. So there were rules, and then there were rules on how to break the rules. You couldn't carry more than half a fig on the Sabbath day. You, you, you couldn't eat without washing your hands. And But all it required for your hands to be washed is just a half an eggshell full of water poured over your hands, and now your hands are clean. Now, has anybody cleaned their hands with a half an eggshell full of water? You can't even get both of them wet with a half an eggshell full of water. So you wouldn't get any dirt off. It's just this symbolism that, that they had made living for God almost impossible. They weren't trying to get people to God. They were pushing people away from God. They had so many rules and so many ways you could break them. There was over 600 ways to break the Sabbath. So they, they had all these regulations that God didn't give them. God just said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. He, he didn't come up with these rules they came up with. These were rules they created. Why did they create them? Because they thought they, by creating more and more rules, they could make people more holy than they were. And it, it caused people to look at themselves, pay more attention to themselves, and as a result, they would become closer to God. But in fact, it did the exact opposite. I am convinced that God is not pleased when we make it difficult for people to find God. Jesus, actually, you go to the Old Testament and you look at the prophecies of Ezekiel and, and the prophecies against shepherds that made merchandise out of their flocks and they fed off their flocks, and they didn't seek and save the lost. They didn't find the disease. They they didn't help those that were in need of help. They just left them alone, and if they died, that was okay, because they had plenty more that was left. That's the world Jesus came into. And he came to save man. Now, our world today has merged this idea of Gnosticism where you can't do anything wrong, so whatever you do in life, it's going to be okay. And and so we don't want to make anybody uncomfortable, so we won't preach against sin. Now, that happens in a church in this city because the pastor on television, on Larry King, made the statement. He's not going to make anybody uncomfortable because he's not preaching, you're taking Gnosticism and marrying it with the church. And so you, you, you get the extremes of allowing flesh to be flesh. And then you have these obstacles keeping people out of the house of God. I remember as a kid, my view of God was a little twisted. I remember, you know, my brain operates in black and white. I have a granddaughter whose brain operates like mine. It's black and white. And I don't see all this stuff that, that, that people say. And I'd hear preachers make this statement, there's no such thing as a sinning Christian. That terrify this. There's no such thing as a sinning Christian, but then there would always be an addendum at the end of it. But nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. And so we define the difference between a mistake and a sin. So it's okay to make mistakes, but not okay to sin. Then I learned the Greek language to discover that sin simply means to miss the mark. You, you aimed at the target, but you didn't hit it. That's a mistake. You, you, you could have been an inch off, but you just didn't hit the target. It's just as wrong to create obstacles to keep people away from God 
as it is to make everything okay. See, wisdom is from above. And true wisdom has distinct characteristics. False wisdom is devilish, earthly, sensual. In philosophy, Plato, Aristotle, when they looked at this term wisdom, Sophia, and they defined it, they all had different definitions, but in their, all of their ideas of what, what wisdom was, wisdom was never a person getting to a point where he thought he was better than anybody else. It was not wisdom to think you had learned everything and everybody else don't know anything. The reason God put a five-fold ministry in the church is to keep the church balanced. If you take any of those five and make them the only one you have, you're going to get people who think they got all the answers and everybody else is stupid. The purpose of a five-fold ministry is to bring balance to make sure that no one starts thinking they got the answers and they got it all figured out. When I read the, the last writings of Paul and he's writing to a church that made him happy, it's the, it's called the epistle of joy. 27 times he uses the term joy in writing to the church at Philippi. And he says to the Philippians, count it all joy when you, and again I say rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. And, and, and as he's writing to this church at Philippi, he gives them a revelation about his own life. And his revelation is, I don't have a hold of what has a hold of me. I have been spending my life trying to simply understand who Jesus is, and I still don't have a hold. I haven't apprehended that which I'm apprehended by. I'm I'm spending my life just trying to know him. A few years ago, I had the privilege of being in the home of one of our elders on the western coast. Very influential man in his day. His name was Paul Price. At the time I was in his home, he was in his early 80s. He's in his middle 90s now, so maybe toward the late 90s, but so it's 13, 14 years ago. I was at his home. It was Sunday after service. We'd had service. We went to his house to eat lunch, and they're, they're preparing the meal, and, and we were standing in his kitchen, and he's looking out the window. In front of his home begins the mountains. He lives in Napa Valley, and, and his house is on the southern or the eastern side of the mountain ridge that runs on down, along one side of Napa Valley, and he's looking up at the hills, and, and I... I I see tears start running down his face. And he said, you know, Brother Hughes, I've spent all my life preaching about Jesus, but I'm not sure I really know him. And whatever life I have left, I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to to get closer to Jesus and know Jesus more than I've ever known him. God is... Not difficult to find. He's, he's not, you, you don't chase God. So what happens to us when we lose wisdom? Because wisdom that's of the earth, the first thing that shows up, it starts causing division. It starts creating people who are in opposition to other people. It's called a party spirit. It's one of the translations and one of the words. Wisdom of the earth doesn't try to unify. It tries to divide. It uses fear, guilt, shame to control people and manipulate people. It makes people feel they're beneath somebody else because they're not as smart as they are. It's devilish. It's of the earth. It's 
It's of the flesh. Wisdom that's from above. The first characteristic of, of godly wisdom if, is it is pure. How do you know if something is pure? How can you define? How do you know if a liquid is pure or not? I, I remember being in Central America speaking, and I watched as people came in church and, and off the platform as a bab street. They built it in the floor. It's out of concrete block. And there's just a, a, a hose bib with a probably a four-foot, five-foot piece of hose attached to the end of it. And they filled the, the bab street up that night and... Uh, ever so often, kids come along and turn the water on and drink water right out of that water hose. And, and, and if you look at the baptistry, it looked clean. The water wasn't dirty. It was clear. So I asked Brother Hopkins, who was standing beside me, I said, is, is that water drinkable? He said, no, it is not drinkable. But they've lived in it long enough. Their body has built resistance. If you go drink that water, we'll have you at the hospital in a little while. So you don't, you don't drink that. It's not pure. So how do you know something is pure? The only way you're going to ever discover if something's pure or not is for it to splash on you and first leave you wet. And then when it dries, you'll know if it's pure. Because when the liquid evaporates, whatever's in it can't evaporate. So it gets stuck to the cloth. So when, when I touch somebody's life, the question is, do I leave a stain? When I, I bump shoulders with people, and, and my life splashes over onto their lives. Is it pure? Wisdom that's from above doesn't leave stains when it, when it's gone. It doesn't leave guilt, doesn't leave shame, it doesn't manipulate people, it doesn't make people terrified of God. God's not trying to destroy us. God's desire is to have the closest relationship with us that He could possibly have. We, we have the example in the garden. When Adam and Eve was in the garden, how often did God show up and talk to them? Every day. Now, how long did he talk to them? How often, how many times did Adam encounter God? How many times did Adam encounter God before Eve showed up? We know he did because God gives Adam instructions that he don't give Eve. They're only given to Adam. So there's there's some kind of interaction. How long? I don't know. But I can guarantee you it was a long time. It was long enough that even in paradise, two people didn't like each other. Without in-laws, they couldn't get along. Without anybody to say, they caused a problem in paradise. Here's two people put in this incredible place, don't have to work, relax every day, perfect temperature. It is so perfect, you don't have to wear clothes. Right temperature, paradise. This place everybody's looking for, but Adam had, and, and he messed it up. So paradise don't work. Here they are in paradise. How, how long? You said, but the Bible doesn't say. It does if you think. Now, Leanne and I have been married 46 years. And I can tell you, that in 46 years of marriage, she's ticked me off a couple of times. Not a whole lot. I could probably count them on one hand. But, but she's ticked me off. But never to the point I wanted to say to God, would you get rid of her? I've had enough of her. See, Adam 
had a way to get rid of her. At least he thought he did. Adam knew something she didn't know. See, Adam knew that you just couldn't eat the fruit. She thought you couldn't touch it. So Adam plants this seed in her mind that allows an enemy to approach. That didn't come from anybody but Adam. God didn't tell her that. Adam did. See, Adam convinces her that the instant she picks up a piece of fruit, she's going to die. So if she just touches it, death shows up. Satan shows up. Don't go to Adam. goes to her. By the way, he's with her because it says she gave the fruit to Adam who was with her. So he's, he's here in a conversation. He, he's, he's watching all this stuff take place. He's, he's hearing all this, these events process. And, and as he's listening and he, he doesn't interfere and, and he hears her had this conversation, and he hears Satan say, what rules has God give you? Well, we can do anything we want, but there's just one little rule. The only requirement we've got for this entire garden is that there's a tree in the midst of the garden we can't eat of, and we can't touch it. Oh, you can't touch it? No. You don't eat it, you don't touch it. If you touch it, you're going to die. Oh, but God knows that if you, if you pick it up and eat it, you're going to have wisdom like Him. You're going to know like God knows. You're going to understand like God. And, and so you're going to have all this wisdom. And, and the first thing she noticed was it was pleasant to look at. And that's where most people stumble. They keep paying attention to what they're looking at. It appeals to the eye is the first thing. And when it was pleasant to look at, what'd she do? She picked it up. And when she picked it up and didn't die, taking a bite wasn't a problem. When she took the bite, that's what Adam's watching for. Adam's waiting to see if she's going to die when she eats. When she takes a bite, doesn't die. See, he, he's, he is looking for a way out. God said you're going to die. I, I don't know what's going through Adam's mind, but I can possibly, wait a minute, God, you told me if she ate, she's going to die. Now she's ate and not dead. Now tell me how two people get to that point that are in paradise, they're in love with each other. How do you go from being awed by this lady that shows up when Adam, or when God brought her to Adam, Adam's response, he called her woman, that word's impossible to translate. It's not our word that, that speaks of the female. It, one translator says, wow, oh wow. He was impressed by what his eyes saw. And when he looked at her, he was awed by her. But somehow over time, his awe became resentment. And he wanted a new model. He had several ribs left. He was watching. Now, if I thought... My wife's going to do something that that get her killed. I'd do everything in my power to keep her from happening, even though she's irritating me two or three times. I wouldn't let those irritations keep me from stopping her from dying. But he didn't think enough of her to keep her from dying. So tell me, they had a happy relationship in the garden. They were getting along well in paradise. This fictitious idea is that, that you're going to learn how to relate to people and have this good relationship is a lie. 
You're going to find somebody to fall in love with. You're going to get married, and you're going to go off in the sunset and butt heads rest your life and irritate each other, and everything you fall in love with will eventually become an irritation because it's the opposite of you. That's God's law. So wisdom was, we're going to be like God. And that's been man's desire. See, wisdom that's from the earth is sensual. It's going to, it's going to appeal to the flesh. Wisdom that's from God is going to be pure. It's not going to stain anybody's life. You're, you're not going to have contamination. You're, you're not going to wreck one another's life. You're going to choose to make each other's life better. It's pure. The second thing is, it's easy to be entreated. Can I just get real? If I mess this up real bad, he can straighten it out when he gets home, okay? When your children ask you why you do something or why we don't do this or why we this works this way, don't ever say because I told you so. If you do, you're pulling at them. Easy to be entreated when someone, truth demands investigation. Truth doesn't hide. If it's true, it doesn't matter how much people look at it, how much they investigate. When they get through, it's still going to be truth. Brother Holly used to say the pig caught in the fence, the one that squeals the loudest. The one that says, no, don't look at me because, well, you know what was the most, uh, one of the highlights of my life was, was sitting in Houston Baptist University in 1970, probably five or six. Could have been the fall. It was the fall of 75. I graduated in May of that year. And I was having to take a class. I had to have 10 hours of religion from Houston Baptist University. So I'm taking a class taught by the professor who is the chair of the Department of Religion at Houston Baptist University. His name is Dr. Kane. And I'm the only person in the room of 30-plus students who's not Baptist and who's not a Baptist pastor. I'm the oddball in this room. I'm a Pentecostal that's not a pastor. And, and, and so I, I'm, I'm in this classroom, and the, the class was one of those, well, it's called fake wisdom, okay? Because the, the, the class I'm taking is about the, the, the philosophy of religion and trying to prove God exists by philosophy. So you gotta learn all these arguments, the teleological argument for the existence, the cosmological argument for, and all this stupid stuff don't make a lick of sense that they couldn't prove if their life depended, just, just words. And, and one day we start class and this guy comes in and he, we start to, and he raises his hand and Dr. Kane said, yes, can, what, can I help? He said, before we get started today, I got a question for you, Dr. Kane. I need help. Dr. Kane said, okay, what, what help do you need? He said, somebody witnessed to one of my saints and convinced them that there is no Trinity. And the more I've tried to explain it to them, the more confused I have become. Would you please explain to us how the Trinity works? And so for 45 minutes, I heard the greatest lesson on the oneness of God I ever heard in my life. And he realizes he's not getting to where he needs to go because every argument he's using proves and every scripture he's quoting proves that the Old Testament didn't believe in a trinity or a multiplicity of a Godhead. They believed it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And and so after 45 minutes, he said, gentlemen, it is a mystery, and we can't really explain it. You just have to accept it by faith. That was his words. 
Matter of fact, I got it written down in a book that he typed up and it has his name on it. It is a mystery. You can't explain it. It's called progressive revelation. People are going to get smarter with time. So the church of 2325 AD knew more about God and Jesus than the apostles knew. And because they got this revelation, this is just the way it is. And, and this is what God is. God, God, God just, He's got all these, he, He's, He's God, He's co-equal, co That's the philosophy. That's wisdom that truth demands investigation. If everything you say proves the opposite, then you don't have truth. So if you express truth and you say truth, lives change. And we're lazy when we say, I told you so, because I said so. If those are my words, it means I don't want to take time to explain to them why we do it this way. What is the purpose of us doing this? Why do we do it this way? We can't make God hard. He's not hard to find, even though there are books on God chasers. But God's not running. Jesus said, the day come now as when two worship me, worship the Father and Spirit and truth, and the Father seeketh such. You start worshiping Him, He's going to find you. You're not going to find Him. All you got to do is call His name. All you got to do is say Jesus. And the instant you say Jesus and call on Him, He's going to find out where you are. He's going to locate you. You couldn't locate God if your life depended on it. He's spirit. We don't have spirit eyes. We can't see spirits. When I call out to Him, He finds me. I don't find Him. See, truth demands investigation. God's not mean. He's not vindictive. God's desire is that our lives be changed. He wants us to live a life free from guilt and shame. He wants us to live a life free from sin. But are we human? So when you get the Holy Ghost, you don't get a halo. You, you know. You don't get royal clothes that, that, that make you immortal. You have the Holy Ghost in an earthen vessel. We have this treasure, how? In an earthen vessel. So the war that's going to take place is you and that vessel. And that vessel is going to give you a bad time every day if you let it. It'll cause you problems and issues. So true wisdom is learning how to fight you and win. That's spirituality. You want to be real spiritual? Then look at yourself in the mirror every morning. Give yourself a lecture and say, me and you are at war today. You're not my friend. You are my enemy. You're not going to give me a better life. You're going to cause me problems. So we're going to have hey, this war is just between me and you. And if I don't conquer you today, then tomorrow I will conquer you because you'll fast. You won't get breakfast. You won't get lunch. You won't get supper. I'll, I'll get you. You're not getting me. I will control you because I have the power to control you. You don't have the power to control me. So your spirit has the power to control your flesh. Your flesh does not have the power to control your spirit unless you want it to. So when... I'm not spiritual. It's simply because I don't want to be. I'm as close to God as I want to be. So are you. The reason I don't get closer is because there's more responsibilities. Get closer I get to Him, more I see Him, and less of me. And so that gets real uncomfortable when when all you. So so we we get into a comfortable zone where okay, this is a good place. I'm not real close to the world, but I'm not real close to God. This is just comfortable to be here, and that's what happens. We get comfortable. And where we live, because if I get closer, there's, there's responsibilities come. You see, what really defines whether or not you're spiritual is how often you act like Him. What defines whether or not I'm really His kid is how many of His characteristics I have. Because wisdom that's from above is first pure, easy to be entreated. Full of mercy, without partiality. Full of mercy, without 
paying respect to person without hypocrisy. Now, that's an interesting word. You, you ever walk up to a theater and, and see those circles that overlap? Or see those little things that look like a fan that has eyes and lips on them? That's where this word comes from. It comes from the theater. The theater in the time of the Romans and the Greeks at this time in history was a, a, a place people went. It was a big deal. And they spent a lot of time there. But they didn't have a lot of money. And so they couldn't hire a whole bunch of people put on a play. So one man could play five roles. All he had to do to change role was switch mask. So if he wanted to be Henry, he had the mask that smiled. If he wanted to be John, who was mean, he had the mask that frowned. If he wanted to be Harry, the one that's terrified, he, he's got the one with the eyes real big. That, there was a different mask for every person. So you could play any role you wanted by simply changing your mask. The word without hypocrisy is on hypocritos, which we get our word hypocrite from. But it literally translates taking the mask off or without a mask. The wisdom doesn't put a mask on. And if you check carefully, there are two other things the Bible says that you have the ability to fake. And they're all equally important. Wisdom is easily faked. You put a mask on and you play a part or act a role and become something that you're really not by just changing faces. Love can be a mask. Let love be unfeigned or have unfeigned love of the brethren. Same word, on hypocritos. That means I can fake how I love people. I make it appear I'm loving them, but in reality I'm not loving them. Because if I truly say I love them and I demonstrate it, then my behavior to them is going to change as well. So I'm going to start becoming what I am saying that I am. So if I, I declare my love to somebody. See, the only place your, your life ever gets wrecked is by people who say they love you. Nobody has the power to break your heart other than someone who declares they love you. Strangers can't wreck your life. Neighbors can't wreck your life. Your boss can't wreck your life. But people who declare love, they can say things to you and wreck you. They can destroy you. I hate you. I wish you weren't born. Why did I marry you? You're not lovable. So we, we, can, we can hurt people that we say. We can put a mask on and love people and love them with, with, with conditions. It took grandkids to figure that out. Because there are people who come into your life that are not lovable. But you love them anyway. They're not nice to you. They don't have halos. You're not my boss. You can't tell me what to do. I don't like you. I'm not going to be your friend no more. My kids never say that to me. (laughs) But those others... So you learn to love people who don't love you back. It's easy to love people to return it. What do you do when people don't like you? How do you love them when they don't love you back? See, when you can only love people who love you back, that's a mask. When you take the mask off, you can love people who don't like you and who don't think you're their boss and who can't tell you what to do. You learn to love people not because they love you, but because they're valuable to you. God loves you not because you love him back, because the odds are there have been time in your life you weren't really nice to God, but he kept loving you anyway. He loved us in spite of who we are because 
He doesn't love with a mask on. He doesn't manipulate us. His love is unconditional. So we love people that don't necessarily love us back. And then the third thing you can wear a mask with is faith. Unfeigned faith. Faith without a mask. The Greek word faith is much different than our word faith. It has much more power than ours. The Greek word for faith is pestis. And pestis literally translates a conviction of the truth of something. So when the Bible declares that the just shall live by faith, that doesn't mean the just are going to live by wishful thinking. The just are going to live by a conviction that Jesus Christ is God manifest in flesh. That's faith. Faith is believing that God came in this world to save men. Faith is the conviction that if I'm buried in his name, all my sin remain in that water when I come up out of that water in his name. That is what faith is. It is a conviction of the truth of something. The just shall live by what? The just shall live by, the just shall live by a conviction of the truth of something. What is that truth that you have a conviction about? Who he is? What he desires in your life? What kind of relationship he desires with you? That he's not hard to please? He's not hard to get to? That, that he's not demanding? He's not harsh? He's not demanding our time? See, the greatest thrill this old man gets is when those grandkids come to my house without me begging them or my children without me begging them. They act like they enjoy being around me. There's nothing that's more thrilling than that. I don't ask for it. I don't beg. They just do it because they like being there. That's what God's desire is for us. God doesn't make us come here. He doesn't make us worship, but he waits patiently for us. And when we show up and act like we enjoy being here, God does all kinds of incredible things because we're letting him know we enjoy being in his presence. I came just to have a conversation with you, God, and everybody else here might be having the same conversation, but I know I have your attention and, and that you're talking to me and, and that you understand what I'm, and, and you've tuned all those other people out. You're just listening to me. God wants all of us. See, the psalmist said, Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. The word delight literally translates to let oneself be spoiled by Yahweh. God enjoys spoiling us, not hurting us or, 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 or making our lives miserable. God's desire, Jesus said, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants to give you the best life you could possibly have. He wants you to enjoy life beyond any comprehension or, or imagine or anything you could possibly even imagine because His desire is that you have the best of life. Not a hard life, not a harsh life, but the best life. What keeps me from having the best life? I'm not living in wisdom. I'm afraid of him. I'm afraid to come in his present. I'm afraid to talk to him. I'm afraid to open up. He won't listen. He won't pay attention. Those are lies. It doesn't matter how bad I've been. The church that made him sick. Revelations. What church is it? Laodicea. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. You make me so nauseated I want to throw up. What did he say to that church? He declares, you, you make, you're, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm, and, and I just want to spew you out of my mouth. Behold, next word, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will let me in, I'll come in. Now, th- that's gotta be pretty bad people when God says, I want to puke, okay? But to the people that made him nauseated. I'm knocking. If any man will open the door, you're going to get a lecture. 
I'm going to tell you how worthless you are. So what's going to happen? If you'll just open the door and let me in, what, what's going to take place? I will sit down with him and I will sup with him. That's the evening meal. That's not the breakfast or the noon meal. It's the evening meal when they shut the doors and they close the world out and, and it's just family sat around a table and everybody got to talk about how the day went. It's when families got together to rehearse the day. He said, if you'll just let me, you make me sick, but even though you make me sick, I'm still waiting. If you'll just open the door and let me in, I'll come. I can help you life. I, I can help you to be better. I can help your life to overcome. All you got to do is just let me in, open a door, invite. You, you make me disgusted. I won't leave, but I'm not leaving. Open a door. Let me in. And if you open the door, let me, I'll come in where you live. Why? Because the just shall live by conviction. What's the conviction? He's Papa. He is Abba Father. He is Papa. I have the privilege of calling him Dad. I can sit down. Now, some of you that didn't have a good dad, that's, that doesn't, you, you, that don't compute. But I had an incredible dad. Some of you folks knew my dad. I never heard my dad one time in my life ever say, I told you so, if you listen to me, this wouldn't happen. I knew if I needed my dad at any time, I could walk in. It didn't matter who I was at, who, who was there. It didn't matter who he was in the presence of. If I had a need, I could come in and he'd say, yes, son, what, 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 what's wrong? And I'd tell him. He'd listen. I never heard I told If you listen to me, this wouldn't happen. God doesn't shake his finger at you and say, all right, I knew you'd mess up. You did it last week, last month, and I already know in the future you're going to do it ten more times. God knows your future before you ever get there. But I don't keep him from having a relationship with you because his desire is to let you understand he's the greatest father. It's a conviction that he's a father greater than any other father you could ever have. Will you ever learn that one and you have the right to come here and the right to enjoy his presence and the right to relate to him? There's just nothing you can't talk to him about. You have the ability. You can even tell him you're mad at him. And he won't get his feelings hurt. You, you can say to him, God, you don't understand. Where were you at last week when they was doing all these bad things to me? God, why did you let that person hurt me? Like You can say all kinds of stuff to him. And he won't get offended. He, he doesn't get his feelings hurt because of the way you express. Because you have a right as his child. You have a conviction that he is really who he says he is. He's my father. He, he, he's God, but to the world, he's, to me, he's papa. He's dad. I can, I can have his attention anytime I need it, anywhere I need it. I don't get on a schedule and come back next week or next month because he's booked up three weeks in advance. He's got to talk to many people and I can't get him whenever I need him. When I call his name, he starts trying to find where I'm located because that's my dad. That's who my father is. And that's the wisdom that's from above. It, it's, it doesn't have a mass. It's sown in peace. It produces peace. Blessed are the peace makers, not seekers. So your world's been looking for it and we bought into that lie. You can find peace. No. God says, I'm going to give you something in your life. You can create peace. I, you're going to become the peacemaker of your world. Walk, walk into any problem in, in your world and bring peace to it. You say, I can't do that. Sure you can. They're mad and angry. Okay. You can walk anybody in this room can control everybody else in that room without their permission. You have the power to do that. All you got to do is smile at them. And when you walk in the most hostile environment in the world and everybody there's angry and screaming at one another, if you'll just start smiling at everybody in that room, all of a sudden they'll, they're going to lose their anger instantly because you can't stay mad unless you close your eyes. God created a human smile to turn off the anger mechanism in every human so no human can be angry when the other humans are smiling. Blessed are the peace. Put a smile on your face. Why? <laughs> What Paul say to the church at Philippi? Rejoice in the Lord. Be happy. Enjoy 
His blessings. Let the joy of the Lord become what your life is about. Learn how to smile, laugh, enjoy life, because that empowers you to become the peacemaker God needs for you to be in your world. Please stand. Gracious Father, thank you today for your incredible word. Lord, thank you for encouraging men to put on paper words of encouragement, words of instructions, words that let us know that the very beginning church struggled with the same issues we struggle with. And that church conquered their world. So we have the same power. When we develop the conviction about who you are, and what kind of relationship we can have with you, that you're the most patient, kind, long-suffering, gentle. There is no characteristic of you that you demand without practicing. You didn't demand that I put on love, that I put on kindness, that I put on patience. You demonstrated how to do it. You came to the world and loved people that didn't love you. You were kind to people. You showed mercy to people. You showed us how to live the life. Paul, writing, declares that you're the author and finisher of our faith. You blazed the trail. You left the landmarks that would make it possible for me to follow behind and not get off the path you blazed because you left landmarks that would not erode with time nor by weather or man. Landmarks that were so permanent that generations to come would be able to follow that landmark. And here we stand 2,000 years after you blazed the trail, and that trail is still available for us today to follow. Thank you for demonstrating to us how to do it, not demanding we do it, but showing us how. Thank you for loving us when we didn't even love you back. Thank you for being the greatest father in all the world. Thank you for your patience towards us and your care and your gentleness. Thank you for your instructions that bring us back in line with who you are. Thank you for conviction that comes to help my life to change and be better when I am convicted by your spirit. I start changing my life. Thank you for your chastisement because a father that loves his children will discipline them when their behavior requires it. You don't spoil us and make us brats. You love us unconditionally so that we can love others the same way you do. There's just none like you, Jesus. Thank you for being the greatest father in all the world. Thank you for not hiding, for not making it difficult for me to get to you. All I have to do is call your name. And when I say Jesus, your ear is attuned. You're, you're listening. You're, you're there. You're already present. When I call out to you, you find me. I don't find you. Thank you for never abandoning your children. Thank you for, for living your word. And thank you for fulfilling your word because you declared in your word, lo, I am with you always, even the end of the world. And here we stand. 2,000 years later, and you're still right here with us, and we still feel you. We still feel your presence. Thank you for what we have felt here tonight, for your presence we felt. When we sang about the power of your blood and its ability to change our thank you for allowing us to feel that power in our lives again tonight. We thank you today, Jesus, because you're the greatest father, the most loving father, the most compassionate father in all the world. You love us with an everlasting love. Thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your people tonight, Jesus. Lord, I pray your blessing upon every life that's here. Would you bless every home? I know Satan's desire is to destroy every home. So, Lord, I pray that you'd build a hedge around every home. Don't allow an enemy in to sow tares among wheat. Lord, I pray your protection on every home, every family, every relationship. Would you bless your families and your people tonight in the name of Jesus. 
We worship you. Would you worship him for a moment? We bless you, Jesus. We thank you today, Jesus. There is none like you today. What a privilege to be in your presence. What a privilege to be in your presence. What a privilege to be in your presence. I bless you, Jesus. I bless you, Jesus. I bless you today. You and you alone are worthy. You and you alone are worthy. I bless you, Jesus. I bless you, Jesus. Now, as the family of God, before you're dismissed tonight, make other family members feel special before you leave to go home. Would you do that? Fellowship with each other. Love one another. Don't forget service on Sunday morning, Sunday night, prayer meeting, Saturday night. In Jesus' name, Lord bless you.